Good morning. It's good to see all of you here. Will, it's good to have you back. Glad to have you here. It was nice to have Wesley last week, but it's good to have Will back as well. And it's good to see all of you who have joined us here for worship this morning. And we are grateful for all of you who are here uh, in person and all of you who have joined us online. We're grateful for your attendance today as well. And let me just uh, add uh, my uh, own congratulations and acknowledgement to all the dads that are out there. Happy Father's Day. Um, I hope that you have a wonderful day today, and I hope that you're able to spend it with family and that you're able to enjoy this, uh, this lovely day that the Lord has given us, and I just pray that it will be an extra special day for you. Uh, if you have your Bibles with you, and I hope that you do, please take them and turn with me once again to the Gospel of John and to chapter 16. John 16, we are, we are coming close to the end of our study of the lessons from the upper room in which we have been looking at the instructions, the teaching of Jesus with regard to his disciples, uh, particularly in light of the fact that this is the eve of his going to the cross. And so he is spending time with his disciples, teaching them all the things that he can invest into them. And and so that when he goes away, they will be prepared for what is going to come. And, And what we've noted on a number of occasions throughout this study that we've been on together Uh, here in John's gospel is that this announcement by Jesus that he would be going away was not well received among the disciples. In fact, uh, this, this announcement that he was going away foresaw not only his crucifixion, which would occur the next day, but it also foresaw his ascension in which he would go back to the Father and he would no longer bodily reside on earth. And, and, and while the disciples didn't understand all of that, they knew enough to know that, that what he was saying unnerved them. They were scared by it. They were, they were dismayed by it. They were bewildered and confused. And, and like so many of us do, when, when we hear about something happening around us, we immediately begin to wonder how all of it's going to affect us. We focus on the impact that this event is going to have upon us personally. And that's precisely how the disciples had responded to Jesus. He he had announced that he was going back to the Father, but the the disciples were really only concerned about what that would mean for them. In fact, Jesus even scolded them with regard to that back in John chapter 14. If you remember verse 28, Jesus said this, you've heard me say that I'm going and going away and coming back to you. If you loved me, Jesus said, You would rejoice because I said I'm going back to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. And when we studied that passage, one of the things that we we centered in on was, was that if the disciples had truly understood the glory from which Jesus had stepped, if, if they truly understood that for him to become the Messiah, to come and become the sacrifice for sinners, if they recognized the glory from which he came down in order to assume that role of a humble servant, then they would have wanted nothing more than for him to ascend back to the glory which had been his from all eternity, back to the glory that was rightfully his as the second person of the Trinity. But that was not their response. Their response was more self-centered. How is this going to affect me? Like us, these disciples became self-centered. And in their minds, they mistakenly even went on to believe that the worst thing that could happen for them would be for Jesus to go back to the Father. That presented for them the worst case scenario. 
What I want you to know this morning is that in the passage that we're about to read, Jesus turns every bit of that understanding on its head and he says, no, 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 you've got it all wrong. The best thing that could happen to you would be for me to go back to the Father and then with that he begins to explain why. So that's where we're going to pick up this morning. I want to pick up on the second half of verse 4. I mentioned to you last week that when John wrote his gospel, he didn't include chapter numbers and verse numbers. Those came along later. And sometimes, and they're very helpful, sometimes they don't come in the best places. And I don't think the verse divisions come in the best places here. So I'm going to pick up in the middle of verse 4 because I think it smooths out verse 5, 6, and 7 very easily. So pick up with me there. Jesus says, and these things I did not say to you at the beginning because I was with you, but now I go away to him who sent me and none of you asked me, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I depart, I will send him to you. And when he has come, he will convict the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. Of sin, because they do not believe in me. Of righteousness, because I go to my father and you see me no more. And of judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. However, when he the spirit of truth has come. He will guide you into all truth. For he will not speak in his own authority, on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak and he will tell you things to come. He will glorify me for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All things that the father has are mine. Therefore, I said that he will take of mine and declare it to you. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of God for the people of God. Let's pray together this morning. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your goodness and your mercy to us, and we're grateful for the opportunity that we have as a people of God to come together. Many of us have come together here in person in this room. There are many of others of our church family that are gathered together online. And we recognize that you are God and sovereign over all those things, even, even the way that we gather. So we are grateful to know that you are ultimately in charge. But even more than that, we are grateful that we have this word in front of us that we can open, that we can read, and that your Holy Spirit, we know that it is, he has authored it and that he is the one who, who guides us into the truth of it. And he opens our hearts to be able to receive the truth and he helps us to understand things that we would on our own, never be able to comprehend. And we are grateful for the ministry of the Holy Spirit that we have just read about and now that we are going to discuss. And I pray that by your Holy Spirit, we would come into a deeper understanding of that and a greater appreciation of this book. But even more, we pray that our hearts will be turned to Jesus even more. That we will truly glory in him and what he has accomplished for us that we could never accomplish for ourselves. May we not walk another step in life relying on our own righteousness and on our own goodness, but that we would rely solely and completely and totally upon him. So transform us by the power of your truth because your word is truth. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Now, the obvious focus of this passage that, that Jesus reveals to his disciples as he is 
instructing them is on the ministry and the work of the Holy Spirit. But before we get there, we got to deal with a little naughty little subject here because verse, verse 5 opens up something that for many has caused them to raise their eyebrows and go, wait, what, what did he just say? Jesus, Jesus makes this statement. He says, none of you ask me, where are you going? Yet we read back in chapter 13 that, that after Jesus had announced that he would only remain with his disciples a little while longer and that they would seek him, but he would not be found, Simon Peter raised his hand and said, verse 36 of chapter 13, Lord, where are you going? And then in chapter 14, after Jesus had said that he was going back to the Father and that he was going to prepare a place for them and and, and then he says in verse 4, And where I go you know and the way you know, Thomas. Thomas objected and said, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Now in light of those two questions in chapter 13 and chapter 14, when we get to chapter 16 here, verse 5, Jesus, Jesus says, Yet none of you ask me, where are you going? The question is, did Jesus forget that they had asked? Or... Or did the intensity of the moment cause him to misspeak? Or is it possible, as some would propose, that chapter 16, the events of chapter 16 actually occurred before the events of chapter 13 and the later editor and redactor who came along sort of cut things and pasted them and did it in the wrong order and so what we have is really not the exact order in which that come. Does any of those, any of those answers satisfy you? They don't satisfy me either, and I think actually there's really an obvious solution to the conundrum that's presented by what Jesus says in verse 5. It's something that I believe is a little simpler and more satisfactory. You see, as I mentioned in my introduction, the disciples had only looked at Jesus' departure from their perspective and how it was going to affect them. They had not bothered to consider how it was going to affect Jesus which is precisely why Jesus scolded them as he did in chapter 14, verse 28. Consequently, what we recognize is that Peter and Thomas, when they voiced their questions, they were really not concerned specifically where Jesus was going. That was not really their concern. Really, what they were more doing was protesting. Peter's question was more of a protest with regard to the fact that Jesus was going wherever he was going, but he was going alone and Peter couldn't go with it. Thomas's question was more of a protest about the fact that he didn't know all of the details with regard to what Jesus was going to do. D.A. Carson really has offered a a more modern example to sort of illustrate this. He, He says a little boy who was disappointed that his father is suddenly called away for an emergency meeting when both the boy and his dad had expected to go fishing together, says this to his dad, Oh, Dad, where are you going? But in reality, the boy cares nothing at all about his dad's destination. His question is a protest. The real question is, Dad, why are you leaving me? Now, I really think that gets to the heart of the questions that had been asked both by Peter and by Thomas. It's more of a question of protest to everything that Jesus had revealed that was going to happen. They weren't truly concerned about where Jesus was going. They were just concerned that Jesus was going. And they were protesting it. 
And that really seems to be the drift of the questions. And it, and it is supported by what Jesus says there in chapter 14, verse 28. And so consequently, here in chapter 16, verse 5, Jesus says they really had not asked the thoughtful question with regard to his destination. They really had not considered that. They were more concerned about what it meant for them, less concerned about it, what it meant for him. What is clear is that in light of what Jesus says here, he chooses this moment to make an announcement with regard to what the ministry of the Holy Spirit would be once he departed. And in their minds, as I said, everything was negative. In fact, verse 6 says, because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Jesus chooses at this point to change that sorrow into gladness by explaining to them the advantageous nature of the coming of the Holy Spirit. And so what I've kind of wanted to do today is, is sort of investigate what is it that the Spirit does? Why is it so advantageous that the Holy Spirit would come when Jesus went back? And so to ask the question this way, what is it that the Holy Spirit does? Well, the first thing that the Holy Spirit does based upon what we see in this text is simply this. He comes when Jesus departs. He comes when Jesus departs. That's the first point on your outline this morning. Now, that may seem very simple, but consider what he says in verse 7 one more time. Jesus says, It is to your advantage that I go away, for if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I depart, I will send him to you. So Jesus tells his disciples very clearly that the future reality that they would experience of the coming of the Holy Spirit would be better. It would be more advantageous for them than if he were to continue dwelling with them bodily here on earth. Now, the question is why? Why would it be better for them for that be, to be the scenario? In fact, based upon what Jesus says here, why is it better for you and for me that Jesus went back to the Heavenly Father and left and sent His Holy Spirit to be here with us? Why is that even a better, more advantageous scenario for you and for me? What is the true nature of the advantage to which Jesus refers? Well, notice the second point on your outline this morning. Jesus gets to it very quickly. He says this. He, the second point is this. He convicts the world of its guilt. He convicts the world of his guilt. That's, that's the role of the Holy Spirit, to convict the world of its guilt. Verse 8, Jesus says, And when the Holy Spirit has come, he will convict the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. Now there are at least two immediate, uh, what I would say, implications or, or things that we can that jump right off the page to us when we read that verse. The first is just simply this. The work of the Holy Spirit is necessary for fallen human beings to come to grips with sin and righteousness and judgment. The Holy Spirit's necessary. The second implication that's obvious from this text is this. The Holy Spirit will accomplish that work through the convicting of mankind of those very things. It will be the Holy Spirit's responsibility to convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. So we could summarize really this way and say that the Holy Spirit brings necessary conviction. But we need to dig a little deeper to figure out exactly what Jesus is saying here. Now last week, if you remember, I told you that when you're preaching through passages of Scripture, as I, as I do, uh, 
you come across tough passages. And last week I told you sometimes those passages are tough to preach from, not because they're difficult to understand, but really because they're easy to understand. And, the, and, and when you understand them, the reason that they're tough is because they don't taste good when you are swallowing them. They're tough subjects. That was, that was last week. Some passages are tough to preach because they're tough to figure out from the grammatical language. They're tough to figure out from exactly what is meant. It's like the gristle that you're trying to chew through and try to get to understand. That's this passage, and they just come back to back. So you just got to love that when you're reading through and you get two of those difficult ones back to back. But that's what this one is this morning. Part of the difficulty with this passage which, by the way, one, one writer has put it this way, the Greek of verses 8 through 11 is so compressed that it is difficult to decide exactly what is meant. Part of the difficulty is trying to understand exactly what the word convict means. A lot of times when we use that word convict, when we use it in the verbal understanding of it, we, we refer to it uh, as, as the fact that someone has been uh, pronounced guilty of a particular charge against them. But we may also use that word convict to describe that someone has become convinced of the truthfulness of something that prior to that point they were not convinced of. And it is my understanding and my belief that, that both of those concepts are at work here with what the Holy Spirit does. In other words, the, the specific work of the Holy Spirit that Jesus highlights in this passage indicates that when he comes, he will actively bring people to an acknowledgement of their personal guilt with regard to sin, righteousness, and judgment. Now, to begin with, Jesus says that the Holy Spirit will convict the world of sin. And then specifically in verse 9, he goes on with a continuation of that thought, and he says that the Spirit will bring conviction with regard to sin because they do not believe in me. Now, that's simple enough because we can go back to John chapter 3 and, and improve that point very easily. In John chapter 3, beginning in verse 16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. And then you get to verse 18. And verse 18 says, He who believes in him is not condemned. But listen, he who does not believe is condemned already. Why? Because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. Now, if you were to just go out and ask random people questions with regard to, give me an example of sin. My guess is the majority of your answers are going to zero in on things like, well, murder, and theft, lying, and adultery, things, things along that, that line. And listen, all of those things are sin. They are sinful actions. But my guess is, is very few people would point to unbelief in Jesus as a sin. However, according to what we just read, unbelief is the sin under which all of mankind stands condemned. And it is the Holy Spirit who comes to convict those in the world who are blinded by their unbelief that Jesus is the only way, the only truth, and the only life. That is the work 
of the Holy Spirit to come and to shine light into the darkness so that those who are attached to the darkness may see the light of Christ and believe upon him. But then this is where the interpretation begins to hit a snag because you see the Holy Spirit's role is to bring those in the world to a personal acknowledgement of their sin of unbelief in Jesus. Then how are we to understand that he brings conviction with regard to righteousness? Many take this verse and, and, and assume that it means that the Spirit will convince the world of the righteousness of Jesus. And certainly, Jesus' righteousness stands behind what is said here, as we will note momentarily. But to understand this verse in the way that would necessitate, to, to just focus in on Jesus' righteousness would necessitate that we change the meaning of the word convict. And we would also change the meaning, we would change the way that that verb relates to the noun righteousness and it would be different from how it related to sin. Hang with me for just a moment. You see, if we say that the Holy Spirit came to convict, to bring to an acknowledgement the, the, the guilt with regard to sin of the world, we have to use righteousness in the same way, that the Spirit came to bring acknowledgement of its guilt with regard to its righteousness. This really, in my, in my way of understanding, is not talking so much about the righteousness of Jesus, convincing the world of Jesus' righteousness. That, that is true. But here is the Holy Spirit coming and convincing the world and convicting the world that it doesn't have a righteousness of its own that it can stand on. And I can prove that from other parts of Scripture. For example, in Isaiah chapter 64... Verses 5 and 6, the prophet says this, You meet him who rejoices and does righteousness. And then he says, But we are all like an unclean thing, and all our righteous deeds are like filthy rags. The apostle Paul comes back and talks about this a lot in the New Testament. In fact, he speaks of, with regard to the Jews and, and their desire to create their own righteousness. And in Romans 10, verse 3, he says, For they being ignorant of God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own righteousness, have not submitted to the righteousness of God. Paul goes on to tell Titus in Titus chapter 3, verse 5, that if we have been saved, if, if any of us have been saved, listen, he says, it is not by works of our own righteousness which we have been saved and which have been done, but according to God's mercy. And then there's the pinnacle passage, really, in which Paul addresses this, and that comes in the book of Philippians in chapter 3, where he says everything that he had once counted gain in his life, all the pursuits of all of the, the right living and the living according to the law and all of the boxes that he had checked off and the things that he had done, he comes back in the end, he says, when I look at it, I count it all as garbage. I count it as refuge. Literally, I count it as excrement and he says this he says I count it rubbish that I may gain Christ and be found in him not having my own righteousness which is from the law but that which is through faith in Christ the righteousness which is from God by faith so based upon what Jesus tells us here in John chapter 16 it is the conviction of the Holy Spirit in Paul's life that we see the fruit of based upon what he writes there in Philippians 3. 
It is the work of, of the Holy Spirit to come into our lives to expose our sin, but also to expose the fact that everything that we were building our lives around to make us be good before God is absolutely worthless in His sight. And Paul goes on to say, anything that I could have ever done, no matter what righteousness I could have mustered, it paled, it was worthless in the sight of God in comparison to Christ Jesus. In fact, that's why the righteousness of Christ actually stands behind this. Because notice verse 10. If, if I can sort of smooth it out this way to, to smooth verse 8 into verse 10, we can say this, the Holy Spirit will convict the world of its righteousness because I go to my Father and you see me no more. You see, Based upon what is revealed here, we realize that Jesus himself is the standard of righteousness. He never sinned. He always obeyed God. And consequently, he is the only one who could die in the place of sinners because he had no sin of his own. And when the Father resurrected Jesus from the dead, he put his stamp of approval on Christ's atoning sacrifice. Jesus could not have returned and sat at the right hand of the Father if there had been even the slightest hint of sin in him. So the Holy Spirit comes to convict the world of its sin. It comes to convict the world of its righteousness and also of its judgment. You see, if we apply the same rules to sin and judgment we, and righteousness, we have to apply it to judgment. And so just as we saw there, it will be the Spirit who comes and brings the world to an acknowledgement of its guilt with regard to its judgment. In other words, the world is guilty of falsely judging. Just a couple of illustrations to prove this from Scripture. In John 7, Jesus is confronted by some Jews who say that he is possessed by a demon. Jesus tells them in John 7, verse 24, he says, Do not judge according to appearance, but judge with righteous judgment. There's two different kinds of judgment. There's righteous judgment, and there's judgment that comes from just looking at things and assuming that you know what is behind it. And obviously, a false way to judge and a righteous way to judge, Jesus says in John chapter 8, he says to them again, you judge according to the flesh, but then on the other hand, he says, I judge with true judgment. And of course, the clearest example that we can see of the world's false judgment is in its rejection of Jesus. John 1 verse 11, he came into his own and his own did not receive him. Why? Because they judged him falsely. They looked at him and said he's a false prophet. They looked at him and said he's a usurper of God's glory. They looked at him and said he's a man who's demon-possessed. The world will always, in its own power, judge falsely. But as Jesus goes on to elaborate here in verse 11 and in verse 8, it is the Spirit that comes to convict the world of that false judgment. And in verse 11, when the Holy Spirit comes, he will convict the world of its judgment. Listen, because the ruler of this world is judged. In other words, because of Christ's impending triumph over Satan, who is the prince, he is the, he is the ruler of this world, the world will stand condemned. You see, all false judgments 
can ultimately be traced back to Satan. He is the father of all lies, as Jesus refers to him in chapter 8. And he says all of those who repeat his lies and join with him, well, they are his children. And therefore, if that is the case, then by the cross, if, if by the cross Satan is defeated by Jesus, then, then all the false judgment of the world is exposed and those who continue to align themselves with Satan's agenda will be condemned also. So, the Holy Spirit convicts the world of its guilt with regard to its sin, with regard to its judgment, and with its righteousness, excuse me, and with regard to its judgment. Now, I want you to just consider the irony of that for just a second because this is the same world which in its own sinfulness and its, in its own smug self-righteousness falsely judges Jesus to be worthy of death. However, by his death, by his resurrection and his ascension, Jesus actually proves himself to be the Son of God and the Savior of mankind. And as a result of his ascension, he sends the Holy Spirit to bring the world into an understanding of that exact truth. In fact, Carson has said it this way, the world is so depraved it fails to discern what sin, righteousness, and judgment really are, and only by the Spirit's deep convicting work can the world ever hope to recognize the magnitude of its misconceptions and gross unbelief. So, now... Hopefully we've navigated through the naughty, grisly part of this passage to understand what Jesus is saying with regard to the Holy Spirit. And what we've learned so far is this, that the Holy Spirit comes when Jesus departs and we have learned that he convicts the world of its guilt. The obvious question in my mind that follows that is simply this, well, how does he do that? How does the Spirit convict the world of its guilt? Well, that leads us to the next thing and the third point that I want you to note on your outline this morning, and it's this. He guides the disciples into all truth. He guides the disciples into all truth. Remember, Jesus is speaking to his disciples here, and he's told them that it would be to their advantage if he went away and the helper would come. And in what Jesus says next, we realize the integral role that these disciples will play in the Holy Spirit carrying out his mission. Jesus says, in verses 12 and 13, he says, I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. However, when he, the spirit of truth, has come, he will guide you into all the truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will tell you things to come. Jesus tells them that there is much more he has to say, but they couldn't bear it at the time. Verse 6 says, just tells again how sorrowful they were. They were grieving. So their hearts were, were saddened. Jesus also knew that his time was coming short, that, that we don't know exactly how long, but it would not be long before he was come and arrested and taken away. So when you add those two things together, their grief and the shortness of time, he says, there's so much more that I would love to say, but right now is not the time for me to cram it all into you. But don't worry. When the Holy Spirit comes... He will tell you everything that I want to say. Now, when you take that and then when you combine it with what Jesus has already said that the Holy Spirit would do, look back at chapter 14, verse 26. There Jesus says, that, but the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all things that I said to you. So when you take what 
was said there in chapter 14, you combine it with what is said here in chapter 16, you get a composite look at what, G, at what Jesus says the Holy Spirit will do. Then we realize that he will guide the disciples into all truth by leading them to remember the things that Jesus had done, the things that Jesus had taught. But furthermore, he would cause them to understand the saving events that were about to take place that they currently did not know. They would come to understand what the crucifixion and the burial and the resurrection and the ascension ultimately meant, not only for them, but for the entire world. In fact, in fact, they would finally be afforded the opportunity to see how all of those things would affect future world history. All of that is what Jesus says the Holy Spirit will bring and help those disciples to understand. In other words, being guided into all the truth for these 11 disciples meant that the Holy Spirit would grant them the ability to recall and understand and perceive the divine plan of redemption and the crucial role that Jesus played in it. And I want you to know that benefit for the disciples would ultimately result in a tremendous benefit for you and for me. You see, the result of the being guided into the truth, they would go and then they would record that truth perfectly for future generations. In other words, because he would be their helper, the Holy Spirit would be the one who would guide them, they would come to know and we would come to know that we have the fruit of the work of the Holy Spirit right here. We have the fruit of the work of the Holy Spirit in our hands that we can we can access and that we can know is true. And how do we know it's true? Because Jesus says he is the spirit of truth. So he is the helper who brings to remembrance all of those things that Jesus has done so that they would be recorded and we can have confidence in what is written because he is the spirit of truth. So this passage really reveals the work of the Holy Spirit with regard to the inspiration and the inerrancy of the Holy Scriptures which reveal to us all the spiritual truth that is necessary for our growth in godliness. In fact, it was through the written revelation of this truth and then through the continued proclamation of this truth that men, women, boys, and girls formerly attached to the darkness of this world system are actually brought to an understanding of their guilt of sin, righteousness, and judgment, and they are shown the light of Christ and brought to salvation in Him. And hold on to that thought for just a moment because we're going to come back to it, but before we do, I want to direct you to the fourth and final point on your outline. You see, what we've seen so far is that the Holy Spirit comes when Jesus departs. He convicts the world of its guilt. He guides the disciples into all truth, and the last thing we observe is simply this. He glorifies Jesus. Verse 14 states it very clearly. He will glorify me for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. Verse 13, Jesus has already said, he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak. Verse 15, he makes clear all things that this father has are mine. And therefore I said that he, the Holy Spirit, will take of mine and declare it to you. The implication of what Jesus says here is that the ministry of the Holy Spirit in his work of revelation, will point to and depend upon Jesus. In other words, that which the Spirit reveals will come from Jesus and it will ultimately point to Jesus. And so we could really synthesize what Jesus says here by stating that 
that the work of the Holy Spirit is to bring glory to Christ by guiding his followers to become immersed in all of that truth concerning Jesus. The acquisition and the absorption of which will ultimately transform them and then enable them to reflect the glory of the Lord to those around them through the clear proclamation of that truth through lives that are lived in obedience to it. That's the point that I made earlier. Based upon what Jesus tells us, we learn that it is through the written revelation of the truth concerning him and through the continued proclamation of that truth. Men, women, boys, and girls who are attached to the darkened system of this world, it's through that that the conviction of the Holy Spirit comes in their lives and they sense their, their need of Christ because of their sin and because of their lack of righteousness and because of their false judgment. And that tells us why it's so important. To me, that is why this passage is so important and it is why Jesus says that it is such an advantage for his disciples if he leaves and the Spirit comes. Because you see, after all of that occurs, when Jesus does ascend and the Spirit does come, what we see is then the disciples are empowered to go out and do exactly what Jesus told them to do in John 15, that you must go and bear fruit. They would have no ability to bear fruit were it not for the work of the Holy Spirit going with them, before them, and using them. And so that's why the advantage is there. They can actually do what Christ commanded them to do because the Holy Spirit comes and empowers them to do it. In fact, let me point you to one example where all of this happens. It all happens. It all comes together in Acts chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost. After Jesus had ascended back to the Father and after the disciples had waited many days for the coming of the Holy Spirit, just as Jesus had commanded them to do, the Spirit came. And when He came, we recognize that He came upon them with power. He came upon them with miraculous power that gave them to speak languages that they had never learned before and they went out into the streets and proclaimed the good news of Christ to those who spoke other languages. Not only that, but they were no longer huddled together, scared to death in an upper room. They were now filled with holy boldness to go out into the world and to proclaim the good news of the gospel. And they got out there and Peter stood there flanked by the other 11 disciples and he opened his mouth and he said this, men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and heed my words and from their brothers and sisters he preached one scorcher of a message where he called them into condemnation over the way that they had treated Jesus and over their lack of understanding of who he was and he ended up this way in verse 36 he says therefore let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus whom you crucified both Lord and Christ and then the scriptures say now when they heard this they were cut to the heart. You see what the Holy Spirit did? He brought conviction. He convicted them of their sin. He convicted them of their lack of righteousness. He convicted them of their false judgment of Jesus. And then they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, repent. Repent. And let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. 
And you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit for the promises to you and to your children and to all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call. And the scriptures reveal that 3,000 souls came to faith in Christ that day. And the Bible goes on to say that the Lord continued to add many to them who were saved. And what we should realize is that all four elements of the ministry of the Holy Spirit that Jesus identifies here in John 16, they present themselves there in Acts chapter 2. He came. He convicted the world. He guided the disciples. And he glorified Jesus. That's the work of the Holy Spirit. That's what leads me to my sermon in a sentence this morning. Points us to the advantage that Jesus speaks about in this passage regarding the coming of the Holy Spirit. My sermon in a sentence is this. The Holy Spirit brings glory to Jesus by guiding his disciples into all truth and by bringing conviction of guilt to the world when the reliable testimony of the scriptures is faithfully proclaimed. Now in light of that truth, let me ask you this morning, has the Holy Spirit of God brought conviction to you? Has the Holy Spirit of God convicted you of your sin? Of your inability to produce your own righteousness enough to stand justified before God? Has he convicted you of the false judgment concerning Jesus? I want you to know that it is only through that conviction that you can be saved. Jesus is your only hope for salvation and eternal life. And if you have never, if you have never come to that place of conviction in your life, then on the testimony of God's word, I plead with you to repent of your sin of unbelief in Jesus Christ, the Son of God. For those of you who are worshiping with us online this morning, if you would like to talk to a minister about that, if you would like for one of us to be able to pray with you and be able to open the scriptures and read some things to you and be able to talk with you further and pray with you, would you reach out to us? The two ways that Pastor Ted mentioned earlier. Number one, there's a phone call that you can make to the, to the phone number that they will put online. The second one is by that spiritual response card. You are, you are welcome to type that out, send that to us, and it will get to us, and one of us will get back in touch with you. We would love to be able to pray with you about what it means to, to come to faith in Jesus. And to repent of the sin of unbelief. We would love to talk with you further about that. Maybe there are some of you in this room that would like to talk with someone further about that as the service ends. You'll have that opportunity as well. I plead with you, if the Holy Spirit is convicting you, don't turn away from him. Don't grieve him. It is the gracious and merciful work of the helper to point you to Jesus and to show you the absolute beauty of the Savior, and to show you your absolute need of Him. If that is your testimony, and you have come to faith in Christ, and the work of the Holy Spirit has already begun in you and convicted you of those things, and you have come to trust Jesus, then on the authority of what we have studied this morning, then let me encourage you to pray for those who have not come to faith in Christ. 
Because you see, it will not come as a result of your ingenuity and your ability to convince them. It will only come as you faithfully proclaim the good news of the gospel and trust in the power of the Holy Spirit to go with you and go before you and to bring that conviction into their lives. So ask God to bring to your understanding and to your mind the names of family members and of friends and then pray that the Holy Spirit of God will bring the same conviction that He brought to you into their lives and then be willing and obedient to go forth and to take this good news that was written and is true by the Holy Spirit to them as the means by which they can come to faith in Christ. When you do that, it is my conviction that you will bring glory to Jesus. Because you see, that which the Spirit does is also our responsibility. Our goal as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ is to bring glory to the Lord Jesus Christ. And we do that whenever we announce to others the good things that he has done for us. Brothers and sisters, this is yet another lesson from the upper room, and it is the word of God for the people of God. Let's pray together this morning. Father, I thank you for your word, and I thank you for sending the Holy Spirit to come and to testify to our hearts of who Jesus is, the absolute necessity that we have of Jesus, and bringing the conviction into our lives that is so necessary, that we are sinners, unworthy of you, that anything that we have ever pursued had no ability to save us because it is as filthy rags before you. And there's no way that we would ever be able to come into your presence and expect you to honor us. But you didn't throw us away and you didn't dismiss us as unworthy. Rather, you sent Jesus Christ to become the sacrifice for our sins. And Father, the fact is that many of us in this room could say that for a large portion of our lives, we judged him falsely. We saw no need of having to come and humble ourselves before him. And yet you graciously, by your Holy Spirit, brought conviction into our lives. And now we've been brought to faith in Christ. And so we recognize the beauty of the work of the Holy Spirit and we acknowledge it this morning and we thank you for it. Not only that, but we pray that this same Holy Spirit would go into the lives of others. And Father, you know that there are, there are three right now in my mind, three names of folks that I'm praying for diligently to come to faith in Christ. My prayer is that your Holy Spirit would work and that you would give me every opportunity to be faithful in my obedience and proclaiming the good news of the gospel to them. And my prayer is, is that my brothers and sisters who are here this morning and those who are online, would also make it a point of prayer to continue to lift those up who have not yet come to faith in Christ, that your work would be accomplished in their lives. We thank you for the ministry of the Holy Spirit that explodes off this text for us this morning. We thank you for it all in Christ's name. Amen.